0: Oh, my name is Justin Clure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Bob Clark, the director of
1: Black Christmas and A Christmas Story. Wow, those are two classic beloved movies. Surely there are other movies in his filmography that are also good. Hey, I'm pulling it up right now. Uh, Rhinestone, Baby Geniuses, Baby Geniuses 2, Super Babies, The Karate Dog. Hey, hey, hey,
0: hey. He made... Dead of Night, a.k.a. Death's Dream. And he also has, you know, some very solid movies like Murder by Decree Mm -hmm. or Turk 182. Children
1: Shouldn't Play with Dead Things.
0: And how could we forget that he made the most successful
1: independent film of all time? And I think still the most successful Canadian film of all time. Porkies. That's right. Bob Clark has some real high highs,
0: some real like in-the-history book films, but he is very rarely discussed as any kind of auteur, mostly because of all of his later-day career. And Bob Clark, like you mentioned, is often considered a Canadian as well. And while he did spend a lot of time here moving because of the tax shelter rules that happened um in his most prolific time as a filmmaker. He was actually born in New Orleans. He spent a lot of time in Florida where he made films like Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. And it was only after Black Christmas that he actually moved to Canada and started to make movies there.
1: Now, he made some films in Canada that were quite well regarded in their day. Mm -hmm. Films that won and were nominated for many Genie Awards, which were Canada's version of the Oscars, including a Sherlock Holmes film with Christopher Plummer. Yep, Murder by Decree. Uh, That's right, which I haven't seen. Even though it's high highs you alluded to mm. are uh, somewhat tainted i think in the popular imagination by the fact that they are in disreputable genres whether it is a slasher film or a teen sex comedy or even a family film you know
0: yeah i mean like a christmas story is a classic mm. like it plays for 24 hours mm. on does tbs still exist
1: <laughs> uh, yeah every christmas well if it does it still exist they yeah. used to they used to play it 24 hours on christmas
0: and did you have any nostalgic feeling for A Christmas Story?
1: I saw A Christmas Story uh, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I've seen it many times. You know, not out of any particular love for it, but just because... It's, it's on. It's on. <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's like, yeah, I've seen parts of it a million times.
0: I was always baffled as a kid. I don't have any nostalgic attachment. Why it was so popular? Because it was on all the time, and I was aware... Of the iconography of it because it had bled into society and I had probably heard people talking about it, but it never had a place in my home because that uh, spot on the mantelpiece was probably reserved for Home Alone 2 mm-hmm. or some other shit like that. So A Christmas Story, while I've heard people talk about it in the way that like it's a building block To their childhood. I think that it's fair to say that for me and you, that is not the case.
1: No, and I'm sure as a kid, I sort of told myself that I liked it. Mm -hmm. You have to, because it's so
0: popular. If you didn't like it, what's wrong with you? Yeah,
1: and it's full of scenes that have become iconic and so you think oh yeah the scene where the kid gets his tongue stuck to the pole mm-hmm. or, you know you'll shoot your eye out or the- or
0: even like or do you want to eat like a piggy and the
1: little brother yeah. goes in the plate and eats the food The fucking leg that's a lamp mm-hmm. you know fragile <laughs> fudge yeah you know all that stuff classic moments that you remember like your favorite song but as a kid i don't know i found it a bit boring mm-hmm. i found me it too not very funny a christmas story Never
0: failed to put me asleep when I would watch it around Christmas time.
1: I found it a bit visually unpleasant, too. Just a lot of browns and, you know.
0: But I think that ties into its whole thematic concern, which is a Christmas story is all about when you're a kid, life
1: is pretty miserable. <laughs> yeah. So we both watched it this week and I still don't find it very funny. Mm-hmm. But I don't I think say, it's very fr- funny either. I had a pretty good time with it.
0: I did as well. I think that approaching it without the baggage of being like, why don't I like this? Like everybody loves this. Why can't I love it either? I can appreciate it on the level that it is showing the life in a very episodic mm-hmm. fashion, which is probably why when I was a kid, I was <sighs> I fell right asleep mm-hmm. of this little tot uh, who wants a gun so bad that it's all he can think about, and his life with his family in this tiny little home where nothing ever goes right. And his father, the only joy he gets is by winning this dumb contest. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it it says so much about what, like, suburban North American life is and how empty it really is.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, there's never enough money. (laughs) No, there's never enough money. Uh, And as a child, you're totally powerless. Mm -hmm. You know, anything that you want... Adults aren't going to understand it. And you are at the mercy of the local bully. You're at the mercy of your teach, your uncaring teachers. Um, your
0: uncaring father who yeah. is obs- obsessed with other stuff that watching it. Now you can see how the father is so petty. Mm-hmm. And like, cause when as a child you view, adults as knowing what's going on and being in control. But I think it can all be summed up with scenes like when the kid has to put the soap in his mouth mm-hmm. and he's talking about how like he likes this kind of soap because it has this minty flavor or this. <laughs> and then at the end the mom puts it in her mouth and is like ugh, "Ugh, it's gross. Like she never thought what it feels like to be the kid to have to put that in their mouth.
1: And he's got the soap in his mouth because he said the F word. Mm-hmm. And they want to know where'd you learn the F word. And well, he learned it from his dad. Of course he learned it from his dad but he can't say that. So he squeals yeah, so on one of his friends and causes some suffering in the other kid's house which just shows you the powerlessness you have as Mm -hmm. a kid the unfairness and then you know later nobody wants to get him a bb gun it's the only thing he wants in the Mm -hmm. world and you know he thinks okay well i'll ask santa claus at the mall do you think santa claus cares santa doesn't
0: care he just kicks him down a slide where the
1: kid has to struggle to get back up so he can actually tell him what he wants he writes an essay for school about what he wants for christmas and it's that bb gun and he's (laughs) so excited for that essay surely my teacher will love this essay no c plus <laughs>
0: yeah and a note that says you'll shoot your eye out with that thing.
1: and he gets the bb gun
0: guess what he shoots himself in the face
1: <laughs> yeah um and also he has to dress in a bunny costume that his grandma knit and he doesn't have any say in the matter
0: and i love that when he gets injured it lets kids know that like well you can get out of this if you can lie. He crushes his glasses, but he fools his mom until like an icicle fell and mm-hmm. hit him in the face. And she accepts it wholeheartedly. And he never has to deal with the consequences that actually getting the BB gun caused him to be hit near his eye.
1: And there's no plot because childhood doesn't have a plot. It's just a series of incidents. And then it all gets honed down in your memory to a series of highlights mm-hmm. that you, you collect in your memory and you narrate over in chummy voiceover. When you were watching it, you
0: were messaging me being like, ugh, this like nostalgic, oh boy, voiceover all of it, which is done by the actual author of the story. Yeah, Gene Shepard, yeah. I kind of love it because... It's like looking back with these rose-colored glasses on these events like, oh, all I wanted was this BB gun when really, like, misery is following this kid. Like, the things he's looking forward to always crumble to dust in your hands. Like, he's so excited to get that decoder ring for the little Orphan Annie show and all it decodes yes. is an ad to drink your Ovaltine.
1: <laughs> that, that's actually my favorite scene in the movie.
0: Because it's its so good. It's like this big <laughs> suspenseful buildup. He's so excited for this to happen
1: and that's the result so without the narration the movie would be depressing
0: yes it would be i would almost say unbearable for most people yeah. and i don't think they would have the nostalgic feeling or the love they have for it uh, i didn't laugh at all i think uh I'm trying to think if i ever laughed i mean there's amusing stuff but it, it's it's yeah. mostly like kind of depressing especially when you look back on your own life or people that you know whether it be like the dad being so obsessed with this leg and as a kid you're like ha ha it's so funny that he loves this leg when you watch it now and you're like the dad has nothing in his life mm-hmm. and this object that he thinks is important and will gain him respect in reality just makes him look like a fool. Yes. And the only way that his wife can get this horrible thing, which she knows is a joke. And it's embarrassing to her. Is by destroying it and having to like make up an excuse that something happened to it. Yeah. And so like, I understand why this film is so popular, but I think that it's one of those films that is amazing. That is also so miserable (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because like, these are the true films that become classics. I feel like, We talk about It's a Wonderful Life on our Patreon episode this week. And it's the same deal, which is a parade of misery. But a Christmas story, just like It's a Wonderful Life, does have a happy ending where, like, you know, the family, their whole Christmas uh, meal is ruined. But they end up at the uh, Chinese restaurant for a bunch of racist jokes. (laughs) And the kid ends up in bed with his BB gun, this brief moment of happiness in his life. Yeah, Uh,
1: which I think is fine. Yeah, Uh, it's okay to leave on a slightly uh, happy note. But yeah, I mean, the Christmas season is a time of year when people feel a lot of pressure and a lot of stress and uh society tells you that it has to be perfect mm-hmm. and people it's like, never perfect yeah, people like and 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 it's a time of year when you know you're expected to meet family and lots of people have family tensions and that's difficult and uh you know it's supposed to be a holiday but you're you spend so much money and your time is so taken up so it's nice to have movies that make you feel okay about the holidays being difficult
0: yeah I- I can understand this being like a warm blanket for people, in the sense that like, oh, like these are reminding me of things that remind me of my own childhood, and in that sense, it's nice to go back to it. And like the voiceover just kind of like smoothes it over, so it's not like a Mike Lee style like kitchen uh, kitchen sink, sink drama. Yeah. <laughs> Of just miserableness during the holiday season. But we skipped ahead because, you know, Bob Clark got to start with uh, a feature film called She-Man, a story of fixation. Which I have seen. From 1967.
1: <laughs> uh, I, I did see that movie many years ago. Something Weird Video put it out. It's a transgender exploitation film. One of those uh, 60s black and white exploitation movies that starts with a doctor, you know, explaining... Mm-hmm. Explaining yeah, what, what you're
0: about to see. Yeah. Old white coders, you know, to make it official. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I mean, I don't remember it very well at all. I mean, I remember it being horrible, but I was just checking a letterbox today and I saw some reviews that said it was a surprisingly empathetic depiction mm-hmm. for its time, so, which made me think, oh, geez, maybe I should watch that again.
0: Well, when Bob Clark decided that he wanted to be a filmmaker, he came to a realization that there's two ways to do this. He could make sex films, which would probably eventually lead to pornography, or he could make horror pictures. And... Uh, listeners have to remember that like around the 60s both of them were somehow viewed on the same level well like the early 70s they were both disreputable genres to be working in but Bart Clark decided all right I'm going to take my friend Alan Ormsby that I met in college and we're going to make a horror film by ripping off um, George Romero's Night of Living Dead and the result was children shouldn't play with dead things which is not a great film Uh, Mm -hmm. it's mostly remembered for nothing happening for an hour and you just have to watch the theater students kind of like act like dick in a cemetery on this island that they are, but it does pay off in a real like gut munching ending with a bunch of like really memorable images that, you know, zombie cinema hadn't really captured yet. And then two years later, he made Dead of Night, also known as Death Dream, which I love. I think it's a masterpiece. And when I watched it, this story of a a soldier that comes back home after the Vietnam War and... Everybody told his family that he died, but suddenly he just shows up out of nowhere. And obviously it's a monkey's spa style scenario. And the soldier is revealed to be a vampire slash zombie. It's never really explained, but he needs blood to survive. And it's one of those great horror films that it's not about, characters trying to get over something but it's about characters looking at this horror and reacting to it in a way that reveals who they are like the mother coming to terms the fact that she cannot live without her son or the father hating his son and pushing him to join the army and at the same time bob clark in this movie shows that he's just like a master at using the camera and sound and pace. The one thing that you notice in all Bob Clark films, other than his use of kind of everyday, oh shucks humor, and even the most grimmest things like this movie and Black Christmas, is the fact that while his films have no three-act structures, he's a little bit more formless than that. He can just perfectly grasp how to frame and just Tell a sequence to get the most suspense out of it. Even something like Dead of Night, that he's talked about that he's consciously gone in and that he wanted to be slower to get the message across. He just nails perfectly. And I remember seeing an interview with him that played before screening of it when I first moved to Toronto. And he said that he would storyboard every shot of his film, which he did right up until his final picture. Mm. Now, that is perfect for suspense. I don't think it translates to comedy which is what he would go on to go do. Yeah. Which is a shame, because I think that he was a great horror filmmaker who A Christmas Story and Porky's were such a success that it got him out of that, and I think led him astray a little bit.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, his most famous horror film, of course, Mm -hmm. is his other Christmas film, 1974's Black Christmas, which I'd I'd never actually seen all the way through until this week. Mm -hmm. And what did you think about it this time? Uh, I thought it was quite good. I mean, as I was watching it, I mean... uh, People talk about the Hitchcocky and suspense of it, mm-hmm. and I think it's it, it's a movie that I think I admired the craft of it more than I really felt the suspense. Because something I realized while I was watching it was that slasher movies in general don't fill me with a lot of suspense because mm-hmm. I there's a there's a fatalism to it, right? You know that. Each one of these people is going to get killed. There's not a lot of doubt there, right?
0: I think what makes Black Christmas special is that it is a proto slasher. Halloween Mm. would come after it. And John Carpenter actually worked with Bob Clark and they discussed like, well, if you made a sequel to Black Christmas, what would it be? And Bob Clark was like, I don't know. Probably the killer would get out and it would be set on Halloween or something like that. You didn't know that? No, I didn't. Oh yeah. That's one of the great like mythological stories. Do you think
1: Bob Clark just spent the rest of his life resentful? No.
0: He says on the Black uh, Christmas commentary, or no, it was the Dead of Night commentary. He's like, yeah, if it happened, that's fine. I ripped off George Romero. It's cool that if he just took mm-hmm. my idea and ran with it. He's like, Halloween is so John Carpenter's film. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not the movie I would have made. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't have been a success
1: if I would have done it as well. Oh, well, that's very mature of him. And, uh, anyway, sorry, I don't mean to sound like I was disparaging Black Christmas. Story, no. Because I think it's really good. I mean, it's, it's like, what I like about it, first of all, is A, all the characters are interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's it's set at this sorority house where you know a killer is on the loose, and you know there's uh, Margot Kidder and there's Olivia Hussey and there's her boyfriend Kier <laughs> Uh th- Those are the the aptly named Kier Dullea.
0: Yeah, uh, don't you mean the superstar from uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey? That's him. But like all, and the don't characters... forget Canadian superstar Art Hindle.
1: Yes, <laughs> he's in there. Like all all the characters. I think just have a little bit more texture and more personality and they're better played than most slasher movie characters I
0: think because the slasher template is not in place its structure is its strength which is like it's not like we introduce all these characters and then we see them get picked off one by one it almost feels like it's the end of a slasher movie like everyone's going home for Christmas Mm -hmm. where media res are already getting these weird phone calls someone gets murdered right off the bat in Mm -hmm. like a shocking way actually two people get murdered pretty much one after the other Mm -hmm. and then like the film is really about like where is this person and like everyone is aware of it and looking for
1: the body or where this person could have gone there's exceptional atmosphere in the movie Mm -hmm. it's
0: a cold feeling film
1: yeah and I and I love that about it I love it's a great Christmas movie in that sense in the same way that a Christmas story has this feeling of just discontent and disquiet like Mm -hmm. it it, it, I you know Black Christmas works as a Christmas it's become a Christmas classic I think partly because it's also a movie where it's melancholy Mm -hmm. during the holiday season (laughs)
0: This image of, like, this big, giant, gothic... A sorority house with these Christmas lights all over them mm-hmm. have a kind of dissonance to them that's really yes. beautiful, especially in this like grainy photography that it has, mm-hmm. which you can see on all the new like Blu-ray releases that came out, which is I think why it's lasted so long. There's a feeling to this movie beyond it just being like, oh, it's a slasher movie set during Christmas that really sticks with people.
1: And there's always something visually interesting mm-hmm. happening in there. You know, just the his his use of light and shadow and the way he'll his compositions are interesting the way he'll often frame people behind you know um uh, a pillar or something like that that, or
0: even like from the get-go that amazing shot which is almost mind-boggling that halloween would come after it which is the pov of the guy that climbs the the uh, house Mm -hmm. and it stays with him in one long take as he goes up and up. That's just like mind-boggling. That feels like the next step to what you would see in Halloween Mm -hmm. or all the POV kind of killer moments that had happened before then, but had not really been a staple
1: to the genre. Also, John Saxon is in it. (laughs) I love John Saxon. no good movie is complete without John Saxon.
0: Hey, don't forget the hoser that starred in the Canadian classic Going Down the Road who plays the other
1: cop. I've never actually seen Going Down the (gasps) Road.
0: I know, Patreon episode. That's a big, important Canadian film. Let's do it. So, Black Christmas has stood the test of time.
1: And the other Bob Clark film that has is Porky's. Has it? I, how, I feel like it's, not exactly a movie that, that... people watch. Yeah, or that people people don't remember it as a classic. They remember it as, oh, that's that stupid movie that made so much money. Yeah, an <laughs> absurd amount of money. Yeah. So, it was one of the top five movies theater
0: came out. <laughs> yeah, to the point that Bob Clark quickly followed it up with Porky's 2 The Next Day. Mm-hmm. Now, Porky's as a sex comedy, I think a lot of people forget that it's a period piece. That it's actually, like all Bob Clark's film, essentially plotless. It's like a day in the life of all these characters going about their business and that it's pretty frank about the sexuality of what's going on. Me and you had a conversation about animal
1: house, how it compares to Porky. I like Porky is quite a bit better than animal house. And I, the difference is that in animal house, you're like, you're supposed to think these guys are kind of fun and cool and you're supposed to be rooting for them, but uh, they're jerks, but they're jerks. Yeah. And in Porky's, these these guys are losers and they're jerks and they're jerks but the movie seems to know that they're jerks yeah but also the movie relates to them
0: i couldn't tell most of the characters apart no neither could i it was like 10 white guys yeah
1: (laughs) but but there's something in there just pathetic desperation that perhaps you're a a viewer of the male persuasion Mm -hmm. uh you could you could remember feelings of of pathetic desperation most
0: sex comedies Take the sexuality that, like, all the viewers want to see when they watch these films and mask it in comedy. Mm-hmm. They rarely deal with it very frankly because then that's a little bit repellent because mm-hmm. people are like, oh, no, well, I, that's weird. I don't like that. But Porky's deals with it like straight on. Within the first 10 minutes, the guys are going to a shack in the woods. So they can each take a turn with a prostitute.
1: Already a kind of unpleasant scenario.
0: And they're all nude, just waiting for
1: her. And then they're chased out of the shack. She comes in and she looks them all over and she makes fun of each of their dicks. One by one. And it's these five guys, you know, these five, you know, aggressively heterosexual guys who are just standing there. Nude. Completely nude.
0: And then they get chased out of the shack and you see their dicks flopping
1: around and stuff like that, which you would rarely see in any sex comedy of this era. And, you know, later on they go to Porky's Tavern, which is kind of a blue collar bar and a... (laughs) different uh, lower class county there's also a class element to this like these are all like upper
0: class kids
1: um and of course they get humiliated at that bar and they get you know thrown twice into the river next to it by porky the corpulent owner of the place (laughs) and that scene you know it's not at all funny but it it feels very real like the the pain and the humiliation feels real
0: the thing that i struggle with porky's is that while it does have kids Talking the way that kids talk, throwing a lot of racial slurs out. Well, kids of this era. And making fun of each other. It also goes to, like, a weird normalization place where I feel like the people watching it were like, oh, yeah, I like these characters. Even though the movie is doing everything it can to be like, no, these are jerks.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's weird because uh, the the movie does attempt to deal with racism in a way. There's a character who's Jewish, Mm -hmm. and there are some kind of dramatic scenes with him. And, you know, there's a a son of a Confederate, basically, who's very, Mm -hmm. you know, aggressively racist.
0: Um, I mean, but there's still some uh, racist jokes at the expense of uh, some African American characters in the film that the film never actually... Mm-hmm. addresses in any way shape or
1: form but i think the gender politics um very troublesome are, are, are also troublesome i guess but i mean it's a movie that was sold as being more sexist than perhaps it is uh, i mean not like it's a feminist film or anything but like the movie was sold on the image of them spying on the, the girls in the shower the girls all noticed that yes
0: and they and, mock and, them. And
1: and you, what you expect is for them to get all scared mm-hmm. and they run out and the boys high five each other. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, we really showed them. But no, they kind of turn around and are sort of bemused by the fact that these guys are spying on them. And then when the, you know, the, the big headmistress comes in, mm-hmm. you know, they leave and the headmistress, you know, comes and grabs the guy's dick. You know, a very kind of a goofy Three Stooges uh, <laughs> yes. scene. But it's like they sort of wield the power
0: over the men. Yeah, Yeah, you know? But at the same time, again, like most of Bob Clark's film, it's not a particularly funny picture, in my opinion. Like, one gag builds and builds over the running time that this one teacher howls like a wolf when they have sex. And, oh, boy, is there a lot of setup to a punchline that's like, okay,
1: I guess. Very lame, I thought. And I think the big, like, funny moments... Mm -hmm they kind of land with a thud and they're all like kind of awkwardly out of place with the rest of the movie. And we- the
0: kids are so cruel to each other. Mm-hmm. It's one
1: of those things like,
0: why would you be friends with these people? Which <laughs> yeah. is a lot like high school is, but
1: I mean, it's hardly a masterpiece, no. but it uh, is certainly better than I thought it was going to be. And it's better than, I don't know, spr- most sex screw
0: balls. <laughs> yeah. Or the last American virgin. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that has it going for it, but like Porky's and a Christmas story I think, doomed Bob Clark, because after those films, his big shot at Hollywood stardom was Rhinestone. Ah. What's Rhinestone? I didn't watch it. I started it, and I
1: was like, why am I doing this to myself? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) good good choice. Uh, I have seen Rhinestone. As a a Sylvester Stallone completist. It's a country music comedy starring Stallone and Dolly Parton, and I also think Richard Farnsworth is in the mix there. I remember nothing about it, but I remember that it was Awful. The
0: whole plot is about Dolly Parton making Sylvester Stallone a good singer, and the film in its final moments presents it like, wow, now he is great. He is not.
1: (laughs) I mean, first of all, haven't they seen Paradise Alley? His beautiful singing voice (laughs) over the opening credits. And so after Rhinestone was a massive flop, a huge joke. Yeah. And then he made what was the movie made out of that Turk Turk
0: 182, which I watched and it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's about um, Timothy Hutton becomes a uh, rogue graffiti artist to bring attention to his brother who was a firefighter and got injured saving some people and the corrupt mayor played by Robert Culp doesn't want to give any time to them. So these graffiti messages kind of bring the city together into this revolutionary-like fervor to help this brother out. And yeah, it's fine. It's fun. It's kind of breezy, and I'm struggling to remember what happens in it, even though I watch it today. And after that, Bob Clark just kind of... Just a
1: roll call of shame after that.
0: Uh, I mean, he made From the Hip, the classic Judd Nelson uh, courtroom comedy written by David E. Kelly. He made Loose Cannons, the Gene Hackman. (laughs) um, Dan Aykroyd, action comedy. He desperately tried to make uh, a sequel to A Christmas Story. It was originally titled, It Runs in the Family, and was retitled, My Summer Story. And it had none of the cast returning, but it had Charles Grodin, Kieran Culkin, and Mary Steenberg as the parents and children, respectively. Maybe I should see that for my Charles Grodin studies. (laughs) And then it was a just roll call of made-for-TV movies interrupted with baby geniuses and uh, Baby Geniuses 2, Super Babies. Which I think was his swan song, was Nope, it? his swan song was The Karate okay, Dog.
1: Okay, right. With the voice of Chevy Chase as The Karate Dog. And
0: so you can see, like, a very obvious kind of trajectory of what happened, what decisions were made, and why it led down this path. Now, I don't know if Bob Clark made a conscious decision that he was like, I don't want to do horror films anymore, and I want to do like films that will be respected, which ended up being these kind of like milk toast TV movies. Films
1: about geniuses. Yeah <laughs> <baby> geniuses.
0: <laughs> or it was just what was given to him because he made porkies, <laughs> which was very successful in rhinestone and stuff like that, which would make sense, but I think it's sad. Because I think you can look at his early movies and that there's talent there and that he understands what he's doing. And he does have scenes that he goes to over and over again, whether it be like the suburban milieu kind of Mm -hmm. presented in a realistic way, whether it be kind of penetrated by a slasher killer or just be penetrated by a kid returning from Vietnam and the things that emanate from that like there's things that interested him that he got away from
1: and i think porky's is not far removed from a christmas story i don't think it is either its tone or its mm-hmm. structure and he he tapped into something real with both of those movies this kind of like it's an unvarnished memory and and, and it's very kind of painful at times and very real but like people also Drive a lot of nostalgia out of mm-hmm. those movies, and and that's an interesting alchemy that he was able to come up with.
0: And friggin' rhinestone had to get in there and just gum up the works, yep. <laughs> throwing everything in disarray from there on end. Yeah, too bad. Yep, and unfortunately he passed away in a brutal car accident. He was about to remake a bunch of his films, including Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, which I think he was gonna direct. Which would have been interesting.
1: Well, he's made two beloved classics, which mm-hmm. is more than most people do. And uh, Merry Christmas, because this is the Christmas episode.
0: <laughs> but we're not done yet, because we got to, you know, uh, advertise our
1: wares. <laughs> That's right. Well, we're doing more Christmas content on the Patreon this week. We watched the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life.
0: Yep. We had a lot of laughs, a lot of sadness. Did we keep ourselves from committing suicide? I don't know. You have to listen to the episode to find out.
1: (laughs) And also, after this week, there'll be another Patreon episode about the most controversial movie ever made. Uh, According to
0: the DVD box set that I have of that film, it says that. So we're calling the episode that there's going to be no episode on Christmas week. I'm out of town, so I don't have a chance to record it. But Patreon subscribers, good thing you'll just get an extra episode and it'll be like we never left. And then we'll be coming back with our top 10 list of 2018, our contractually obligated episode. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Boy. Yeah, I got to think about that.
0: Yeah, but we'll figure it out. We have time time until then. You don't need to give me those 10 movies yet. and as per usual you can email us at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com
1: perhaps if you're feeling lonely this christmas season you can send us a letter (laughs) and imagine we're there with you under the christmas tree
0: uh i should point out as well that if you want to become a patreon subscriber it's five dollars a month and you can go to patreon.com slash the important cinema club and if you sign up you'll get Every upcoming episode that's released during the week. And you'll also get the entire back catalog. And for $10 a month, you will get an exclusive newsletter every month in your mailbox. Crazy. Who does that anymore? And uh, the first one already ran out. And the second one will be going out on January 1st. So just make sure if you want that January one to subscribe this month. So do we have any letters this week? We do. Our first letter and only letter is from Michael Carroll and he goes, dear club, long time caller, first time listener. So what's your take on Eyes Wide Shut? You talked about it a bit on the Tom Cruise episode, but I didn't get a clear read. Is there nothing there or is it just the appearance of nothing being there? And Kubrick is doing deep cuts about the commodification of art like Tim Crider suggests. I don't know what... I'm not I'm not sure. There is a link at the bottom of this letter,
1: but I cannot share it on the internet, so check it out. Okay. Happy holidays, Michael Carroll. Well, I think the reason we didn't really talk about it much is because we have this idea for a Kubrick episode, mm-hmm. um, which is, what if we watched Fear and Desire and Eyes Wide Shot? His first and last film. Um, which is uh, us desperately thinking of what's a semi vaguely novel approach to kubrick
0: but don't worry we will probably not share any new insights that you don't already know
1: i mean what is there to say about it let's not let's talk let's never do a kubrick
0: (laughs) but eyes wide shut we can talk about it a little bit yeah
1: yeah, uh, because it is a christmas movie. that's right um i i like eyes wide shut um i feel foolish objecting to it at all because you know he he's kubrick and he's a genius and uh he's got it all figured out and also i know it was received mixed when it came out but like all of kubrick's movies it has ascended to classic status and there's nothing else like it. I think it's impossible for someone who knows who Kubrick
0: is to separate Eyes Wide Shut to the process that went into making it, that defines Kubrick as that perfectionist filmmaker that anyone that obsesses over him
1: loves. Yeah, and it's it's such a deliberate film. Mm-hmm. I mean, he spent almost plotting in the way that it spent kind of goes. Well forward. over a year making this. You know, fucking shot in England and to make it look like New York City. And there. Are a lot of times you look at it and you say well he did this for a reason mm-hmm. and what was that reason if i have a beef with the movie so i so i have some beef a couple of beefs with the movie and anyone that you bring up i'm sure that a fan of the film could say well that was the point that he was going uh. for so Everyone always says, well, it's a dream, mm-hmm. and and that's fine, and they use that to rationalize the fact that New York in the movie doesn't look anything at all like New York. No, it's because he shot in England, and they built New York there. Yeah, and there are all those establishing shots, those canned insert shots of just the New York skyline, so that immediately punctures the dreamscape, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that said, the movie is surrealist. Uh, everybody talks like they're in slow motion and you know everything is heightened and weird um so it's meant to be surreal mm-hmm. i just think there are many times when he doesn't quite he doesn't quite cap like it's kind of a half-baked surrealism and i, don't I think
0: know. that like you look at that as well because you go well he's supposed to be the perfectionist director yeah like is this on purpose is he doing it because that's all he has and like When you talk about Kubrick, he's the guy that would do like 100 takes, but he's also the guy that edited 2001 A Space Odyssey at the last minute as he was bringing it to its Hollywood premiere on the boat because Uh the preview screening they had went so disastrously that he's like, I got to edit it. Like, I got to remove the narration that's in it. I got to do this. I got to do that. Just so it
1: would be more palatable for audiences. And, you know, everyone always says with this movie, oh, you know, he turned in his final cut and it was his definitive cut. And but then it he wasn't. died a week later. It wasn't. And I look at this movie and I think, would that second half be as long? No. Would it have those establishing shots? Like, Like, would it be this movie...
0: Yeah, I, well, I don't Kubrick know. Well, Kubrick died and he wasn't done yet. And like, as I said about that 2001 story, who knows? He would have probably been cutting it up to the last moment
1: before the print had to hit that projector. The second half of Eyes Wide Shot, I think, where Tom Cruise retraces his steps, it's a lot. It gets a bit plotting for me. And, you know, why this style for this story? He's trying to make a statement here about... About marriage and uh, the way that sort of passion can fade in a marriage, and the way you can be tempted in marriage, and how you you have to ultimately he he comes down on the side of you have to keep recommitting yourself to marriage, and that's what a grown up relationship is, and that's supposed to be a very relatable story. Yeah, you should fuck more in the relationship that you have. Yeah, it, it, well, it's supposed to be a relatable story. It's supposed to hit you on that sort of gut level, but then why all, that? weird, half-baked, surrealist treatment for it.
0: Well, I mean, there's a reading into the film as well that it can be about Tom Cruise not feeling that he's as successful as he should be. Like, he's rich, he's a doctor, he has a loving, beautiful wife, but the little crack in the facade that his wife imagined having sex with someone else Mm -hmm. has thrown him completely in a tailspin. And the idea that there's a secret society that he's not part of like breaks him on the inside and he needs to be involved in this in some way because maybe if he gets that, then he'll get the respect that he feels that he deserves. Yeah,
1: and I I like that. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, despite everything I've said, I basically like Eyes Wide Mm -hmm. Shut because I think there's something about its treatment of like, male sexual insecurity mm-hmm. that that resonates very strongly yeah men I are think. pathetic yeah <laughs> even yeah. if they look like tom cruise yeah and he goes out and he wants it's like okay well you know she said that and i'm going to i'm going to get out there and i'm going to i'm going to fuck yeah. you know and he can't do it no nope. Yeah, and, and that's sad and pathetic. And also, there's no other movie like it. No, there's nothing that feels like Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, it's, it's a very specific
0: experience. Just like the most controversial movie of all time, which we talk about on our Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's Eyes Wide Shut. Who knows? <laughs> um, but we'll put that Kubrick talk back in our pocket, and we'll get back to it at some point. Um, we're going to be trying to do more serious films in our Patreon episodes, just because they're usually directors that are so, like, monumental- Mm -hmm. that like, ah, how would we do just one episode on them? So I feel like Stanley Kubrick would be a perfect director to do like an episode, a Patreon one on one of his films. Mm -hmm. So uh, we already talked about what we're doing next week. (laughs) So until uh, after the holiday season, my name is Justin LaGlue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? An eternal question that comes up during this time of the year. And I think we have the definitive
1: answer. Who cares? Yeah. I say if it makes you happy during the holidays and uh, you can just watch it.
0: Yeah. And there's arguments out there that are like, oh, but if you can watch it any time of the year, is it a Christmas movie? Who cares? Like, it yeah. probably feels different when you put it on during Christmas because it just makes people happy, either
1: you or your family that you watch it with. So not that I care, but what is your criteria for what what is a Christmas movie? If it takes place during Christmas. I okay. am like a Christmas fanatic
0: during the holiday season. I don't know where it came from or why I got obsessed with like, what, does this film take place during Christmas? Because I got really excited this year when I discovered that the forgotten Woody Harrelson, um, Wesley Snipes... <laughs> uh, action film Money Train takes place during Christmas, and there's a lot of Christmas content in it. And it could only exist as a screenwriter
1: desperately trying to rip off Shane Black. Money Train was one of those movies that I saw the trailer a lot, endlessly uh, on the viewers' choice paper. So much. Yeah, that
0: was fled. Yeah, fled. <laughs> Money Train, Bordello of Blood. Yep. Uh, I think I would always confuse it with is it what's the one where it's like white man can't jump? No, there's like an ice truck of some kind or an
1: ice train, and it's like a heist. <laughs> oh god, I don't know, but listeners, if you know what he's talking about, please write in.
0: I'm sure I could find it. I think it's stop- uh, I don't want to say any name just in case I get it wrong, but like it and also like heavy rain or hard rain? Hard rain? Yeah, The Christian Slater heist uh, film.
1: Yeah, I I know that title. But yeah. anyway, we're 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 getting distracted. Uh Christmas movies. So, if Bruce Lee fights back from the grave from from the 70s, that has a scene where he goes to see a Christmas parade. No, because For it to be a film that I consider a Christmas movie,
0: it needs to take place entirely during the Christmas season. Mm -hmm. So even something like The Silent Partner, which stars Elliot Gould, really fun, suspenseful film. It's him and Christopher Plummer are like dueling because Christopher Plummer robbed the bank of Santa Claus, but Elliot Gould got away with the money and now Christopher Plummer's coming after him. A chunk of it takes place during Christmas, but then it's summer in the latter half. Not a Christmas right. movie.
1: And just to be clear, that's your own personal definition. That's my own if, if personal people definition. people want to watch it during doesn't Christmas. Doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Um. So how about It's a Wonderful Life? Uh, well, people watch it during Christmas. It's a Christmas movie for people. Like, but for not me, for you. you
0: no, know, it wouldn't give me the feeling that I want of something that takes place entirely throughout Christmas. Something like Gremlins, which people watch Gremlins throughout the year, but it does take place during Christmas. A lot of action films, I think mostly because they were ripping off... Shane Black and the success of stuff like Lethal Weapon, which people forget entirely takes place during Christmas, Mm -hmm. or The Long Kiss Goodnight, another Shane Black script. That's what I like. Like I come in peace, a Dolph Lundgren film. Mm. Christmas, in the background, a lot of it, RoboCop 3, christmas in the background
1: now robocop 3 is a terrible film but it's fun that christmas is happening i just watched batman returns again there's a lot of christmas iconography yeah in that. yeah and i also think it's a good christmas movie because as i've said before it's melancholy
0: yes and i think that's very important when it comes to christmas stuff i mean people that subscribe to the newsletter i actually wrote an article that compiled all the zines that i made about christmas <laughs> and listed all the titles and i had like 50 or 60 titles
1: in there the best christmas movie the passions of carol <laughs> all right what's the passions of carol will the passions of carol thanks for giving me this opportunity no worries uh directed by sean costello uh the director of many one day or two day wonders he gave you water power oh uh it is uh, to my knowledge the only christmas porno of the 70s it's a uh version of the charles dickens story a christmas carol and it's about uh, I'm forgetting what it's it's a, it's a version of that story, but it's a porn. What the hell else <laughs> yeah, do you need
0: to know? But it's it's pretty handsomely put together as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's like For it's pretty, It's pretty well shot as far as they go. And Sean
0: when- Costello was like, "It's the first film I made with a script." <laughs>
1: Yes. And when Sean Costello made it, his idea was, well, we'll open it at the World Cinema, which was this this theater in Times Square, but not during Christmas. Well, but the idea was to open it during Christmas. Mm. He said, "We'll we'll put it in December and then this will be a place for lonely single men to go (laughs) and we'll dress it up like Radio City musical and they can have a nice night. And unfortunately, he didn't get the movie done in time, so it ended up getting released in like March <laughs> uh, at a time when nobody was in the mood for a Christmas porno. <laughs> I wonder how it would have gone over if it
0: had come out in December. I don't think it would have probably gotten the reaction that he thought it was going I'm to. I'm just very touched by the thought
1: of it. Like, <laughs> like, you know, that
0: he wanted to help these lonely,
1: horny men. Yeah, who are probably nude under their trench coat. And I mean, you know, I would imagine people typically went to porn theaters just furtively, you know, hoping not to be seen. And, you know, it's nice that he wanted to create a community. <laughs> <laughs>